Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, you're very welcome along to episode three of season two of the group chat. I am news correspondent Richard Chambers. I'm joined, as always, by the purveyor of politics, Gavin Riley. That's a title. I'll take that. News ninjas, Ari King. Oh. I'll take that. I'll take it. How are you all doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to future episodes now, just to see your ingenuity and nomenclature. I've done this with <laughs> other episodes as well. And I... You said that you you were back with once again with the Renegade Master, mm. and then I can't remember what I was. Oh, you said I said I was looking like young, Don't call it a new approved. Yeah, and I was like, I'm neither of those things. Yeah. yeah, and I remain neither of those things. Well, how are you? Good, yeah, not too bad. Back week off there. News kicked off while, while I was away, as, as, as always happens. Whenever I'm away, something bad will happen. <laughs> there was there was a little bit of news. It's, yeah, it's a little bit of news. Let's kick it off. Uh, the news across the water is, of course, our kickoff point for today. The, mm. uh, we're a week on, effectively, from the death of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom, head of state in 14 countries, the longest-serving royal in British history. Obviously, uh, our neighbours in a period of national mourning now, but it's surely not too soon um, to look a little bit forward in terms of looking to the future um, after centuries of monarchy. Is it all about to change when you have such a figurehead and somebody who clearly has touched the lives of so many people in Britain and around the world as well, to give her the credit that's due. Um, Sorry, you were in London for the last number of days. Yeah. Is it an institution that has a chance of fading at this point? Well, I want to start by saying that obviously I spend most of my time in London outside palaces, which is generally where people who like the monarchy tend to gather. So Fair. I, I'm going to be honest in saying that, like, let's let's start with that. Okay, okay. so I mean, everything is qualified by the fact that you're allowed to hear from monarchists and stuff. like Yeah, that. like yeah. I, I spent like, you know, three or four days with people who really love the royal family. So, you know, know that that's where this is coming from. And um, look, I suppose the thing about it is um, you talk to people. First of all, people are so upset in the UK and, and like people have that I spoke to would say like they didn't even realize how upset that they were going to be. They maybe were people who didn't necessarily follow royal news, you know, day to day. They were sort of loosely following the goings on of the royal mm-hmm. family. And when they heard that the Queen had died, actually it struck a chord in them or it hit them in a way that they just did not expect. Um, a lot of people talked about the fact that this was about kind of losing that consistency that they had had for 70 years, that sense of sort of constant, you know, that mm. she was, you know, through all of the prime ministers, yeah. that she was the one that was always there. Se- like 70, like 70 I, I saw a stat during the week that 90% of the people on the face of the earth have never known another, another. royal wow. in Britain other than Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah. Which is actually kind yeah. of astonishing. It is astonishing, isn't it? Um, and so for that reason, I think a lot of that uh, really is kind of rooted in how people are feeling at the moment. Um, in terms of sort of uh, the value that the royal family adds to the UK, look, it's been much debated about whether or not they add to tourism versus how much do they cost. I don't know if like now is the time for people to really have that conversation in depth but I think that really what you get from people certainly outside palaces in London is that <laughs> um, I mean look is that tourists they, who have gone to palaces <laughs> think that it's great yeah. tourists that go to palaces to lay flowers for the queen you know think that the monarchy has a, has a role to play um, you know in reality I suppose 
in terms of how they feel about Charles now, mm. the key mm. question being, you know, the future of the monarchy as such. There are some people who would definitely say to you, you know, kind of, you know, they would be shy about it, but they would openly say maybe they would have preferred to seen it skip to William straight away. But then there are others who say, look, he's been in waiting for so long that, you know, compared to his mother, who kind of was catapulted into it at a very young age in her 20s, mm. that actually he's had more time to prepare yeah. than she ever like had he's, and he's therefore been longest adult. internship of all time kind of, yeah. he's been an adult waiting for this job for 55 years and it's astonishing really when you think about a man in his 70s taking up a new role when you should be retiring yeah. it's kind <laughs> of mad it, is, it mad. is a little bit mad like I mean you couldn't on a human level you couldn't but think my god like these should be the years of your life where you're winding mm. down and actually here he is his mother has just died and he's you know his yeah. schedule's never been fuller sort of thing yeah Gav I mean what, what's your take on this it actually it's very interesting I was actually only watching the film The Queen there the other, oh, the other the Helen the other Mirren week. one yeah yeah with uh, Helen Mirren and Michael Sheen plays yeah. Tony Blair in it and it's a good film uh, but I think there was a bit where the, the character or the actor playing the Queen Mother says to the Queen oh don't worry about all this you're, you're the best asset the monarchy has and the, what's actually going to be the big problem is when you're gone mm. here we are now <laughs> well, she is prescient. gone so I mean, do you, what's your 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 sort of feeling on is this a, is this an institution that is now doomed to fail I or think, to collapse over time? I think part of the standing of the institution, whether people in Britain have ever really realised it, is the fact that she wasn't just the head of state of the UK, but of fourteen and until recently fifteen other countries as mm. well. That she's the head of state of. Australia and Canada and New Zealand and Jamaica and almost a dozen other Caribbean countries. Um, and I think because they're all now openly touting, you know, it d does the fact that we have no particular emotional attachment to the present figurehead, does that mean that we should actually just cut this link once for all? Like, Zara, you mentioned that the one of the apparent defences or the justifications for having a monarchy is this idea that they're, they're a tourism draw mm. and that they, they make more money for the country than they cost. That's not true for any of the other countries that share this particular monarch. That mm. all the, the other 14 countries, like tourists don't go to Australia or New Zealand or Canada or Jamaica no. or a country like, yeah. because they want to go and see a royal palace. If anything, I would argue that Australian tourists, of which I met a lot, and Canadian tourists, they all come to the UK for that reason. Yeah, precisely. Mm. So they leave domestic tourism <laughs> yeah. to go to the UK so and spend their money there. So if those countries now do push on with this idea of, well, should we just sever the link once and for all? And a few of them are openly already touting referendums or, or even Jacinda Ardern, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, saying she can foresee uh, New Zealand being a Republican in her lifetime. The Prime mm. Minister and leader of the opposition in Australia are both Republicans and they'd like yeah. to have another go at a referendum which fell a couple of years ago. Um, I, I could easily imagine that if all those other countries decided, hang on, wait a minute, this doesn't really have a purpose for us, that you might go back then to the question of, well, what is the purpose of it in Britain? And could the same purposes be fulfilled by anyone else? Yeah, I think we'll come, we'll come back to the Commonwealth question in just a bit, but, but Zara, obviously just to focus on, on the British angle of it mm. first. I mean, you, you were speaking to a lot of people there yeah. uh, just basically about how they saw the future of this playing out. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose just to take you through maybe a statement as well from this anti-monarchy campaign group called Republic uh, who were speaking over the weekend and said, look, while we recognise that many people are reflecting on the loss of the Queen, Britain does need a debate on the future of the monarchy. They say a proclamation of a new king is an affront to democracy. So that is the sentiment from that group. And like I say, again, Again, we spoke to people outside outside the palaces. One of the things that comes up as well is that conversation around whether or not um, the public have moved past what was a very scandalous period of time for, for Charles in the 90s. Obviously, with the death of Princess Diana, there was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of people who took a long time to get over, you know, the relationship between Charles and Camilla. People have well moved past it now, mm. as they told us. And we can take a listen to some of the people we met over the weekend. Do you think Charles has what it takes to secure the future of the monarchy? Um... Yes, I think there. I think there'll be a lot of change. Um, so we've grown. I've 
I, she's my mum, so we're <laughs> mum and daughter. Um, well, I've grown up with the Queen, so it's it's a huge change. Um, but over the years, I've grown to like Charles a lot more. Did Your Majesty witness the Mary? A change is worrying, but it may be a great thing at the same time. And when you say worrying, what are the things you're most concerned about? I think it's just unsettling. Change is just unsettling for people, whether it will be positive or negative. The Queen's been there for 70 years. She spanned four generations of our family, and I think just any sort of change can be worrying. It will be a lot of change, but I think it'll be a good change. And do you think people have moved on from the scandals of the 90s and, and the... the the whole entire sort of debacle. Charles wasn't very popular at that time. No, he wasn't because we all loved Diana and that was a huge shock to us. But yeah, I think we've moved on now. It's been nearly 30 years and you've got to move on, haven't you? And I think, you know, with his mother as a role model and Camilla by his side, I think he's a lot calmer and I think she's a really good stabling influence on him. So you can hear there that people are certainly... Now, again, these are people, by the way, this was outside um, St. James's Palace where King Charles was being proclaimed. So, again, they've turned out for that occasion, so it's probably just important to say that. Um, but I think in general, kind of the feeling from people really in Britain at the moment is that uh, it's been a very sort of destabilising week because they have a new prime minister, they have a new monarch. Like, there's a lot of change happening mm. in the one week. They Monday, they started with Boris Johnson and Queen Elizabeth, and on Friday, they finished out the working mm. week with King Charles mm. and Liz Truss. Which is actually another reason, and thank you for reminding me, it's another reason why there might now actually be reason for Britain to reconsider whether there is a place for the monarchy. Because part of the idea of having different heads of state and government is that one provides continuity when you have a change for the other. So when you had a new queen, you had Winston Churchill, who was already well-established in power and could basically show her the ropes and guide her into the job. Likewise, when you have a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss would have been assured knowing that, well, Queen Elizabeth has seen an awful lot so I can maybe rely on her counsel. When you have two people who are new in those jobs in the space of three days, it does make you wonder what, what is the purpose of one to provide continuity for the other. Yeah, and I th- but I think as well, like there's a sense with, not to change the subject, but I think there's a sense with people as well that like everyone has a story to tell about a time where they either saw the Queen or they met the Queen in Britain. Like it's a very, mm. you know, and because it's been such a long time. So you've got people who, for example, we were in Windsor on Sunday and there was a, a man who worked in the fire brigade the day that the fire happened at Windsor Castle and he was part of the team that put the fire out of the castle and, you know, he, he met her that day and he has really fond memories of that. And then another lady passed by two minutes later and she lives in Windsor and she was in a mother and baby group and she talked about how the Queen slowed down to say hello to them one day and, and like, you know, just kind of stopped and waved yeah. from the car. Kind of and like, everyone seems to have all these kind of stories in, in Britain about, you know, or my granny met her or someone. Like, they all seem to have a connection. And I think right. that that's really mm. important to people, actually. And I think when it comes to, like, I think if it came down to it, certainly based, again, on people that I met, obviously, who gather at palaces, I do think that people see, um, see the royal family as something that gives them stability. But in saying that, with change comes uncertainty. Yeah. The point I want to move on to is what about the future with Ireland? Because it's well, all well and good talking yeah. about the United Kingdom. That ain't us. Um, mm. There has been obviously, obviously we had the state visit here from Queen Elizabeth II a number of years ago. All very historic and all that sort of stuff. Prince Charles, as he was then, now King Charles, mm. uh, has been over to this island uh, many, many, many times. You've been on his trail how many times? I don't, I, I've only been twice on, I was on they've done six well I've done two yeah. you did the Mullochmore one yeah. did you yeah. and I think this is why this is the point about it is that he has been here very regularly and he's been to the island uh, of Ireland he says he wants to visit every county he said that when he was in 
Waterford, my there. home county. I really feel like Waterford inspired him to want to see he the rest of the country. There's a couple of different um, points to this, though. Uh, yeah. And obviously, Zara, you were in, in Belfast there uh, on Tuesday when he was um, Hillsborough Castle and he went to the memorial service yeah. in Belfast as well, which was also attended by the Taoiseach and Liz Truss was there and also the political leaders um, in the north, which, of course, are still waiting for Stormont to get back together. Now, he has clearly taken some level of interest in the political situation in the North. And we have a, an exchange he had there, quite a, it's got a lot of interest, his exchange with Alex Maskey, uh, the speaker at Stormont uh, of Sinn Féin, and of course, the leader uh, of Sinn Féin in the North, Michelle O'Neill. Well, she played a great role here in terms of reconciliation and building peace. So it's the end of an era for sure. Yeah, but to say the least. Yes. And what you say, Sam, is you would never read your obituaries and all the nice things people say. I know. <laughs> it's very frustrating. I know. I know. We don't say enough about people whenever they're alive. No, for sure. I know. I know. For sure. Anyway, it's very good to see you again. I haven't seen Next you. Next to Yes, I know. Yeah. A few years. Cork, um, I think, was the uh, last time we met. But you know the biggest part here. We are indeed. We are indeed. Yeah, so a little bit muffled there, but um, Prince Charles clearly, or King Charles, sorry, apologies, old force of habits. I'm not going to pretend like that didn't nearly happen to me a couple of times in London. Absolutely going to happen. But um, very interested in the situation in the North and in terms of Ireland, very, very much there. He's very aware that Sinn Féin is the biggest party in the North. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of a joke at the expense of Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP there. Right kind there. of amusing. Yeah. Um, but th th there is a couple of different points to this. The one point I want to make about this as well is that for people in Derry, uh, King Charles mm. uh, has served as the Colonel-in-Chief of the Parachute Regiment, uh, which of course the Parachute Regiment mm -hmm. was involved in Bloody Sunday. Uh, in 1972-26 unarmed civilians shot uh, by that unit uh, the emblem of the parachute regiment still to this day used uh, in taunting the families of the victims of Bloody Sunday uh, which is obviously awful um, but he has put reconciliation at the centre of mm. what he wants to do do you think that there is a chance then Zara that there will be I'm not going to say a better position, but there will be a turning of a page in terms of the relationship between Ireland and Britain. Yeah, I think there's a definite commitment there from, from Charles and Camilla, even before he became king, to, to continue the good relationship between the two countries. I think at the end of the day, there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of families up and down this country who have, you know, husbands and wives that are from the UK and Ireland. People recognise that they are intertwined. And, you know, even on a, on a token level, every taxi driver that picked me up in London was like, I have a cousin in Cash, I have a cousin in, in Mullingar. You know, like there's a huge connection between our two countries. Um, continuing peace is a very important part of that. Something actually that I thought was interesting um, when he talked about, you know, he said, my mother always prayed for peace. And he said, in this place. And like, it was interesting. That really kind of didn't resonate with me. But then to listen to international correspondents reporting around me uh, in Belfast, particularly the American correspondents saying that they picked up on that and thought that the fact that he'd used the term this place was significant because it meant that you weren't calling it Ireland, you weren't calling it Northern Ireland, that you were just saying people living in this place that the, that the Queen had always prayed for peace. And they thought mm. that the leaving out the name actually yeah. Yeah. was sort of That's indicative. An and I, I just, it was funny because I literally had heard one of the American correspondents speaking up on that. And I thought, wow, that probably wouldn't have occurred yeah. to me. But when I thought about and I thought, yeah, maybe that was a deliberate kind of, you know, it doesn't matter what we call this place. The most important thing is that there's peace. Yeah, um, it is, to be fair, not not to take away from the resonance of it, but it, it is a, a term, a phrase that is used mm. in that place to refer to that place. It's something yeah, that, that people north of the border like to say because they don't want to be exclusively referring to 
that corner of the island. Yeah. So they, they do tend to use it a little bit more interchangeably. I do think on the on the broader question, I'm glad that you mentioned his symbolism for for Derry because, in a way, Queen Elizabeth might be perceived as having done. She made a, a big historic visit and everything, but she might have perceived as having done slightly less for the normalization of relationships than Charles has done by so many visits. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that Charles held that honorary position with the parachute regiment and some of the horrible things that that regiment has been responsible for, um, for which there's still been scant justice, I think is going to be an issue for people. We wanted to know before we sort of put a, a bow on all of this. Um, often when we talk about um, you know, the Scottish independence, which is something we, we might get to a bit later on, and this idea that, well, Scotland, you know, the Scottish government doesn't want to be part of the union, it wants to keep the monarchy, but how fond is it of Charles? I think we haven't ever really fully grasped in this part of this place how much a united Ireland is made more likely if Scotland were to leave the union because the anchor that so many northern unionists have to Britain is through Scotland, through that Ulster-Scots connection. Mm. And if being Ulster-Scots no longer necessarily means that you're attached to Britain or the UK as an entity, mm. then we could find things unravelling maybe quicker than anyone yeah. in this part of the world had ever anticipated. Mm. Changing times, interesting. Definitely is. Uh, changing times and changing of a an epoch sort of shift really I suppose you could put it that way but we'll come back to, to more on um, the Queen King Charles this whole changeover a little bit later on in the programme Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option I never really was a salad guy that's just not who I am but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, the doll is back, bringing up the curtain on a political season that could be probably one of the most tumultuous, probably one of the most unsettled, I suppose you could put it that way, Mm. in recent times. The budget is in two weeks' time, Gavin. Yep. Cost of living. Oh, no. All that sort of stuff. (laughs) The housing situation. And thinking season. Think just ended. Think people will wonder, what is thinking season? I was going to say, thinkings are, are a really curious thing because no other country seems to have them. And I know there are a few other, when, when I'm tweeting and I see other political reporters from other countries being like, sorry, sorry, what? They're having a what? Do they, is it, it's not the same as pa- uh, party conference season no. as they would have so in the UK. A party conference is where, where all ordinary members can show up. It's an Ordesh. It's more Ordesh vibes. Okay. And, and party members show up. And so and people be... will wonder, what's the difference between an Ordesh and a thinking? So a thinking is basically just a meeting of the parliamentary party. So in our case a meeting of TDs, senators, maybe MEPs, uh, in Finnegal's case uh, councillors as well who showed up for the day um, but it is not open to ordinary members. It is just for them to basically work out their plans of action or figure out what are their priorities for the coming dull term. So often you will have opposition parties, they will come together and decide well what is it most important that we look for progress on or what is the government weakest on and basically just strategize. And for government parties 
it's a slightly different beast because there will be some people in the room who want to discuss party affairs, as many people, for example, at the Fianna Fáil meeting uh, in Mullingar wanted to do. They wanted to discuss the affairs of the party, how do you project an identity for Fianna Fáil, which is not the identity of the government, and so on. But in Fianna Fáil's case, because, as you say, there's a budget coming up in less than a fortnight, and there's a whole heap of stuff that needs addressing in the country, the 13 people in Fianna Fáil who are ministers were like, well, we haven't got time to be thinking about the state of the party. We've got a country to run. I'm sorry... Fianna Fáil seems to have been talking about its identity for I just said this yesterday. Like, I feel like they've yeah. just been worrying about their identity for so long. We need to talk so about long. leadership. We need to talk about who we are as a party. Mm. If you haven't figured it out by now, lads. Well, the, the, the official response as to why they weren't talking about it is because their Ardesh, as distinct to their thinking, uh, their national conference is on in two weeks and they'll have plenty of an opportunity to discuss what way the party is going then. Uh, but there were some TDs who were just so impatient and furious about the party being so mediocre in the polls and demanding mm. something to be done about mm-hmm. it. Um, and the minister is just saying in response, having time lads sorry um, which is a fascinating split for um, Fianna Fáil to have just at this particular time that 13 people in the room six senior and seven junior ministers were like budget housing health um, you know agriculture and it's European a timing affairs. thing though isn't it like it really is a time like you're two, weeks, you're two yeah. weeks out from budget like having an identity crisis two weeks out from budget probably mm. not ideal no uh, and like I'd say another, it's suboptimal actually it, it, is, it is certainly suboptimal and there's a separate one which you might come back to in a couple of minutes another something of an identity crisis among or between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil over who gets which cabinet jobs and what that might mean on a European level uh, which we'll come back to so the doll returned this week uh, and by the time people see this in television will already have risen for the weekend because that's that's how they work there folks <laughs> <laughs> they, rise in, the they rise on a Thursday evening and don't go back until Tuesday afternoon. Um, but there is, there's remarkably little dull time left, actually, but certainly before the budget. And then after the budget, almost certainly all the talk then turns to uh, how the government will look after December mm. and the rotation of but Taoiseach. Just on the think-in thing, because they used to have this reputation and you used to hear the phrase drink-in. Like, mm. what's the story with thinking? Is it a big session? Um, they certainly used to be a big session, and I think the epoch of them being big sessions um, reached its zenith in 2010 when oh, yeah. Brian Cowan then went on morning radio and did an ill-fated interview. That was when the controversy was, yeah. Mm. Yes, uh, which was after uh, a drink in at the thinking, and since then the culture has never quite been the same. Now, often at the end of uh, summer break it's a useful opportunity for the members of parties to mm. get to socialise a bit with each other because they would lo- likely not have seen each other. They're obviously very close colleagues when they're in Dublin three days a week solid working very long hours and then they don't see each other. It's like nearly going back to school after not seeing classmates for a summer break yeah. and they like to socialise again and some members of the press also then like to join in on that because it can be a useful way to assess the mood of the room or to get a bit of gossip as to what went on. Uh, but they're not nearly as... Um, raucous or as indulgent as they were before the Ardalone Hotel in 2010. Well, there we go. You mentioned one thing, Gavin, that it has kind of become this unforeseen talking point and a little bit of a schism uh, within <laughs> the coalition, which is who gets what job and one job in particular once the changeover happens. And that is the job of the Minister for Finance, mm. currently held by Pascal Dunne, who has it has done for... How many years is he in that job now? Uh, he is in that job since 2017 uh, because after the previous general election, Michael Noonan was in finance and Pascal became public expenditure. Yeah. And then after, oh, a year, yeah. after a year, he took both jobs. And then with the coalition with Fianna Fáil, he gave over public expenditure back to Michael McGrath. Mm. Now, the assumption has always been, and I must stress this is an assumption because it's not actually written into the programme for government. People would think that these things, like, for example, December the 15th being stipulated that that's the day Micheál Martin hands over the role of Taoiseach. That's written into the programme for government, but the 
the party that holds the Department of Finance is not written into it. So this is all effectively based on unspoken understandings, which apparently were never Good spoken. old-fashioned gentleman's agreement and all that sort of stuff. So which, this is the perception that some portfolios are more valuable than others. Yeah, well, I mean, finance objectively is. Yeah, it's course. the only other department. Well, it's or, the purse strings well, of the well, government. But not only that, but it's the only job other than Taoiseach and Tánaiste, which is written into the constitution. Mm. It's mentioned yeah. there because of its significance. So it is basically the, the third ranking job in government. But Fianna Fáil's understanding was certainly that if you're rotating the top two jobs, then you should rotate the two finance jobs as well, thereby mm -hmm. putting Michael McGrath into finance, which, to tell the difference, by the way, is the raising money tax side, mm -hmm. and Pascal Donoghue back into public expenditure, which is the spending side. So one minister is responsible for incomings and the other is responsible for outgoings. Now, what complicates all of this is that the minister responsible for incomings, minister for finance, is the person who represents Ireland at the Eurogroup. And for the last five years, that has been Pascal Donoghue. And Pascal Donoghue is so respected among other uh, finance ministers on the Eurogroup, which is the finance ministers from all the countries that use the Euro, 19 in all, that for the last two years he has been its president. He chairs those meetings. And this has been presented as something of a national asset because when you're talking about, uh, for example, um, discussions on corporate tax around Europe, it's seen as advantageous that if the Irish guy is chairing it, then you can at least be sure that the interests or concerns of countries like Ireland yeah. will be represented. Mm. But... How much of that is really just a bauble for Fine Gael or for uh, Pascal Dunhu personally? And should that be a reason why you wouldn't rotate the job? Okay, so just to, to, to summarise this very quickly. Fine Gael have been raising the flag about this saying, oh wait, we forgot that this job was meant to shift. And if we shift it now, well, then Ireland won't have the Eurogroup presidency, which we mm. like. Uh, and because it belongs to the person and not yes, to the country. The yes. uh, but yeah. how, Sarah, how did they get to a point? Two years into a coalition where they, didn't they said see they were going to they didn't see this coming. Well, they might argue that they've been busy with other stuff. I mean, that's probably <laughs> the response they're going to give you. But does that not? I mean, no, it's kind of it is kind of outrageous. But what I don't really get about it is, you know, well, what I don't really understand, I think people will be confused by Gavin, is like how important is it to have, you know, the Eurogroup? I mean, how as a gig, like, is it mm. is it really, a, is it a deal breaker? Like, if we lose it, is it that big of a deal if we lose it? Um, it, it isn't necessarily that big of a deal. See, again, the funny thing is that the depending on who you ask or when you ask them, you get different answers. Like, can Pascal not be like, my pal Michael's going to come next week and chair the meeting? He'll be all right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, could, that, like, could yeah. that not happen? I'm just bringing my friend, is that okay? Can my friend, like, sit in for me? Or is that not a vibe? See, That's the thing is happen. that I remember when Pascal Donoghue was, was seeking this election, and I remember asking, you know, well, what's in it for Ireland and the answer that I got at the time was there's nothing in it for Ireland it's just that Pascal Donoghue would like to kind of drive the agenda but he's, he's not there as chair of the Eurogroup or as president to represent Ireland's interests specifically he's just there to chair the meetings he, he can wear his Minister for Finance hat to represent Ireland but he's not there to like further Ireland's cause so do, Richard do you think it would be a huge blow if we lost this? No Okay no, I don't think so. Like, I get it. I get it. Like, I get the prestigious position. It's and nice it is to one have of the big it, like, positions Yeah, it is nice to have it, but... In terms of regard mm. in Europe. But, like, the Eurogroup is, to some degree, you're going to have... Like, if you're going to look for where the push and power and all that is amongst European mm. finance ministers, you're going to look at the French and the German finance yeah. ministers. Well, this is it. But there is one, one unspoken advantage to being president of the Eurogroup, which is that you also get to attend the summits of all the other EU leaders. So when Michal Martin and Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz uh, and all the other European heads of government go to Brussels every three months, mm. Pascal Donoghue gets to be there, which means there is a second Irish voice or a second Irish perspective well, that's pretty, like, in that the room is for those. And that would be Despite lost. Despite numbers in the room. Just, just well, our basically just sheer yeah. numbers. But you can yeah. also argue that there's two Germans well, in the room because Ursula von der Leyen is there as well. So easy come, easy go. I, I, it's not, a, it's not a, a, like a, a parallel in any situation. But do you remember when the whole Golf Gate thing was happening and people were like, oh, we're Ireland, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot by getting 
getting rid of Phil Hogan from the European mm. Commission position. World kept turning. Um, world kept turning. Mm. Even despite the fact that it was apparently one of the worst things, all these people who were defending Phil Hogan uh, at the time were sort of saying this would be the worst thing that could possibly happen to Ireland and we're mad to be doing this. Whereas this is something which is naturally going to happen if we're going to have, you know, the coalition tick along. Mm. Uh, and Michal Martin seems very adamant that this is what's going to happen. Anyway. Well, yeah, definitely. And if it doesn't happen, then what are the consequences in terms of the relationship between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael? The, the relationship is really the, the question because we... What's uh, the state of the relationship people in one direction right now? Is it quite good? Uh, or? It's it's in pretty good shape. Okay. Um, certainly for, for a time as tense as this, when they're looking into a very difficult budget where they have an awful lot on their plates, the relationships between the two parties do generally seem to be quite good. That's, by the way, not to airbrush the Green Party out of history. They also exist and they also have good relationships uh, with the other two. <laughs> people would think that for, for two parties that are so historically antagonistic, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are actually doing pretty well okay together. But if you have the rotation of Taoiseach and there isn't seen to be this parity of esteem where Fianna Fáil gets some other bauble in exchange for giving up the office of Taoiseach, maybe then they won't be quite so good. And that will be an interesting two and a half years to serve out if relationships aren't quite as good. Do you think that together they're sort of united in the battle against the Sinn Féin rise? I mean, it was kind of gas today to hear the Count Gorla making that uh, slip of the tongue. <laughs> yeah. What exactly in, happened in, there, inviting, the, inviting the Taoiseach to speak uh, when it was actually Mary Lou Macdonald's turn to speak and then Mary Lou being like, oh, the, oh, me, the Taoiseach. Oh, sorry, we'll write this way. Of course of course, I will speak. She enjoyed um, that vote of confidence, didn't she? Richard? She did. Oh, who wouldn't? Un- yeah. Unexpected who wouldn't? promotion. Yeah. We, spent, we spent the last two years here in Leo Bradford called the Taoiseach mistakenly, so now it's time for Mary Lou Macdonald <laughs> to be called the Taoiseach. Will, will we the, the other side of December will we finally actually get into the habit of referring to Michael Martin as Taoiseach even once, when he doesn't know the job <laughs> uh, yeah stay tuned for that but I suppose like that—that that is that is it was an interesting one for first day back in the doll it was a, a slip it was a hell of a slip hell of a slip now, during the week as well, there was a poll conducted by the National Youth Council of Ireland. It found 70% of young people aged between 18 and mm. 24 are considering moving abroad because they think they would enjoy a better quality of life in another country. That uh, new study carried out by Red Sea on behalf of the NYCI published on Monday. Azara, you've been conducting your own, uh, I suppose you could say a Red Z poll. <laughs> if that isn't grown worthy. Oh, can so. we call them that in the future now? so good. A Red Z poll on Instagram. But what were your followers um, telling you about their attitudes towards potentially you know, being drawn towards the exit door of the country. Yeah, so my following on Instagram, just so we're clear, would be kind of majority women under 45. So that's kind of the bracket that we're talking about. It's not about. necessarily the same 18. It's not going to be no, the yeah. same. Yeah, just, just to be clear, it's not the same, like obviously sample size. Um, but and it's just an Instagram poll that was literally put up in the last three hours. But um, 40% of people are saying yes to that. Um, 57% saying no and 3% saying they already have moved abroad. Mm. So um, the next question I asked people was just like, if your answer is yes, if you are considering moving abroad then can you tell us a bit about uh, why and your job and Mm. and your age so we've got a bit of a mix here Uh, someone has written doctor age 40 another said a 40 year old doctor doctor. a lot of doctors though I think in fairness feel like the Mm. system here is just not a lot of healthcare workers and they go it it isn't even just like the young young ones that's people into the age groups you know people Mm. in their 30s and 40s would be drawn towards leaving because there are such good specialities abroad in healthcare systems where they'd easily just you know plug in quite well so that is something which is a, a real trend over the last number of years uh, Teacher 36 uh, 26 primary teacher permanent two years and mortgage still feels impossible even with a partner 
26 digital marketing costs more to get to and from work than I earn so I'm working two jobs at the moment uh, my son who is 25 uh, is thinking of moving away as he can't afford to move out of home and his best mates are going to um, 34 self-employed with three uh, sorry with four kids 33 year old working hotel will never be able to buy a house or upskill here may just have to move no choice um, a lot of teachers another one here 30 and a teacher another one says as a teacher there's no security with jobs so I can't afford to live in Ireland not getting paid for holidays oh, so probably mm. a subbing I suspect yeah so if you, if you yeah. get a maternity cover or something that often you're not getting paid for the summer holidays the way yeah. the permanent one would which can be a huge difficulty for a lot of them um, someone else said I would move in the morning only my partner has two boys from a previous relationship so we are stuck someone else says 23 accountant uh, rent everything is too expensive and feels like I'll never own my own home nurse 31 I want to live not worry female age 39 yeah I think there's there's so many different issues we even talked about it I think it was on the first episode of this season um, about um, you know a young healthcare worker going off to, to live in mm. Dubai because of the situation there and there's so many different headings on it whether that be housing whether that be the cost of living whether that be pay mm. uh, so many different things blend into this and the overall situation with regards even to even to things like nightlife and stuff like that yeah. end up into the mix when it comes to young people wanting to leave the country mm. yeah there's, there's two things that I kind of would like to say about it firstly that it's actually really distressing when you see people that are effectively you know of our age the early to mid 30s who are thinking about it because if you think about leaving the country at that age and if the cost of housing is one of the reasons why you're going you're we're sort of like at the, at the round about that age bracket where if you don't get a mortgage within the next few years basically you, you may never be able to afford a mortgage because most banks expect you to have the mortgage paid off before you retire and that means mm. having to pay for the whole property within 25 years which is basically not really a runner for a lot of people it's a reason by the way why a lot of couples who meet later in life really struggle to be able to get by in Ireland because it's too late for them to get a mortgage because mm. they've got too little of a working life left. Um, so that, like, it's kind of distressing that they'd be contemplating leaving because many of those would just never have the circumstances to return. The other thing is that there's been outrageous snobbishness by some people about this yes. idea that mm. so many young people would consider leaving when they have jobs because there's a, so many generations who are used to seeing young people leave but only when the economy is in the doldrums and there is no work for young people 10 years ago when youth unemployment w was so outrageously high after the bailout and the economic crash and it was somewhat understandable that young people would leave the country then because objectively they just couldn't find work it's different now yes there's work but if the work doesn't give you any kind of security about being able to afford a roof over your head mm. let alone a decent mm. quality of life afterwards the fact that like a full-time job in this country doesn't make ends meet like that's that's seriously yeah, like damning there's, there's such a lack of empathy in that opinion though isn't there because like it's just such a lack of understanding and like it's when we scary. it's horrible yeah. and I think that as well you know we talked about it at the Electric Picnic podcast people who were there will remember speaking about this and we talked about accidental landlords and I kind of quipped that like I mean the chance of being an accidental landlord these days would be a fine thing you can't even buy your first home let alone be kind of mm. trapped in negative equity because yeah. you actually can't even get on the property ladder to even you know not that you want to get there obviously but I'm just saying like it's just you know you yeah. can't even get to a stage where you're buying your first home mm. so I think that attitude like it's not how it's yeah and so. like this idea that like you know all the young people are out brunching and not saving for mortgages is absolutely outrageous like every mm. person I know who's our age who's trying to buy a house is really struggling to save and these are people in really good jobs and um, you know who are earning plenty of money who should in theory be able to buy a home in this country and they're just not able to yeah I just think I just that that point about the this this horrible cynical attitude and actually it was expressed and it went viral a couple of times on Twitter even over the course mm. of the week, you know people even involved there was some commentary from 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 a lot of people some even involved in education of young people and stuff like that where it was just sort of like mocking the idea 
that young people would have a better life abroad. And I'm just like, where is that mm. sneering attitude coming from? It's quite unkind, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's actually like, quite it's unkind. Also, it's just it's it's genuinely true that people, if they work in the same careers overseas, but they work in countries where housing is slightly more plentiful or slightly more affordable, that they could very easily have. And it doesn't seem to bo- it, it doesn't seem to bother a lot of people involved in in public life in Ireland that people w- that young people like we often hear all these you know platitudes towards oh our best asset is our young people and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't seem to be any worry at all that all these young people are considering leaving the country, mm. which seems to me to be astonishing Incredibly when we're trying to attract advantage. foreign direct investment in big companies on the brain drain I'll just read you a couple more sorry yeah, go, don't on, go ahead sorry, read more. I was going to say another one here a 44 year old senior manager on 120,000 a year and I'm contemplating leaving this is absolute madness uh, I'm 29 Dublin is dying before my eyes I work as a tax advisor in one of the big four uh, definitely planning on leaving in the next 12 months I'm 26 I moved to London last year to work as a speech and language therapist with the NHS I feel there is more respect for speech and language therapists in the UK and a better system here again that's kind of the healthcare thing that we discussed yeah. already. Um, I'm sorry now, this is actually a second part to the message. Um, I work in finance and I see a better future for myself in the US with more opportunities, particularly when, when it comes to housing. Um, I'm 32. I work as an admin in a GP surgery. I'm living at home. I have flights booked to Australia and see no hope of a future here. Yeah. Well, that's just... It says it all, really. I suppose the yeah. the, the inattention that you mentioned that like the, isn't doesn't seem to be acknowledged by politics or by the establishment. I wonder is it just being masked by the fact that the overall numbers when you look at like overall immigration slash emigration. I think there was net sixty something thousand people immigrated to the country in the twelve months up to last April. So if you look at the headline figures, people are coming to Ireland, and maybe that's what breeds the cynicism of older generations. They go, "Sure, look, if Ireland was such a crap country, you wouldn't have tens of thousands of people looking to come into it to make their lives here." But yeah, which is true. Like we're not saying Ireland's a failed state, but we're just saying that if people on young professionals on objectively good salaries still can't manage to yeah. secure a place to live, let alone anything else. That, that, that's a pretty basic failing of a, of a society. Yeah, and there's a big difference, I think, as well, between like, you know, sometimes there's this misconception that like, oh, sure, young people want to travel, they want to see it. That's totally different. If you want to travel and you want to emigrate and you want to go do all these, you know, really exciting things abroad, and that's that's the reason you're making that choice, and that's 100%, you know, fine. But if you feel like you don't have an alternative choice, that's the problem, is that if you feel like you're looking down, if you're in your early 20s and you're thinking, you know, in 10 years time, am I realistically going to be in a situation where I can actually buy a home and set up shop? Then like, you know, you are weighing up your options. And I think we've talked about this before and we'll go back to it again. And it's something we should definitely talk about on the pod down the line. And I've heard from so many people. We talk about, you know, single people, like this society is totally set up for couples, you know, where you can share a deposit or you can share a rent or a mortgage or whatever. Like it's almost as if you are punished for being single in this society. And it's definitely something that, um, you know, gets forgotten about. And I think it's just really unfortunate. Single people find themselves really forced to kind of, you know, make decisions or move back home or move abroad and they're left kind of trapped without any sort of alternative. Yeah, and I think the situation regarding young people and the hopelessness that they sort of feel in this is probably why um, you're probably going to see a lot of young people attend that rally, uh, which could be one of the biggest ones we've yeah. seen in this country for a long, long time. Uh, the cost of living uh, protest which was taking place just a couple of days before uh, the budget, 24th September outside. Uh, Leinster House so that is one to watch as well so returning now to the question of our, our dear neighbours and the situation regarding uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth the start of the reign of King Charles III um, I want to read you a little extract of something mm-hmm. Harper's Magazine which is like the longest running regular magazine general interest magazine in the United States put a good summary of the situation uh, they re- referenced the fact that Parliament was suspended 
given the death of Queen Elizabeth. Soccer matches, fashion shows, labour strikes were cancelled, church bells were muffled, 96 round gun salutes rang out, and drug dealers offered discounts on cocaine and ketamine. <laughs> uh, in one of her final acts... <laughs> yeah, it happened. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. People in WhatsApp, but there was one no of things where they were saying, yeah, in honour of our Queen, this is what's happening. <laughs> I do continue sorry. here anyway. Uh, millions. Sorry. I cannot. No. I, I cannot. Okay, sorry. Actual, actual thing that happened. News of Charles's accession was taken across Britain by heralds on horseback and to Buckingham Palace bees by the Royal Beekeeper. Did you see this? I saw that I story. Yeah, that. and you sent yes. that to the WhatsApp group. <laughs> I did see that. The Royal Beekeeper says, you knock on each hive and say, the mistress is dead, but don't you go. Your master will be a good master to you, he said. A Canadian citizenship ceremony was delayed after officials were confused about whom to swear allegiance to. Oh. A woman was arrested for holding up a sign that said F star star K imperialism abolish the monarchy. And an 89 year old woman who worked as an Elizabeth look- lookalike announced that she would now retire. <laughs> uh, surely the, the, she'd the get extra- more work now. Yeah, no? so. yeah. She's stepping into her own now yeah. I think surely. Um, the extract concluded with the fact that Prince Andrew a friend of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein who this year settled a lawsuit accusing him of sexually assaulting a 17 year old girl was announced that he will receive the Queen's Corgis. There's a lot of different things which are touched on in that which we're looking to come across. <laughs> There's enough There's a lot to, to get back. through there now. Okay, we just mentioned the, the lady who held up the star saying F star star K. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. a few other people who, who maybe have, have barracked or heckled at certain events mm. across the last week. Um, most people would agree that uh, to heckle at a cortege where there's members of a family that are literally grieving because they're following the coffin of their mother mm. is possibly in bad taste and that maybe there's a time and a place and that this might not be it. But I, I just cannot understand for the life of me how a country would still hold itself up as something of a beacon to the rest of the world about the idea of pluralism and about tolerance and about you know discussion and debate and healthy civil liberties. Mm. That somebody who's even peacefully holding up a sign, let alone barracking or doing something in bad taste, holding mm. up a sign will now get you arrested for being a breach of the peace. I just get kind I, of I, mad. There, there's a time and a place, and it, it may, might be in bad taste. But like, since when did it become illegal to hold up a sign saying I don't agree with this? Or a sign which actually didn't say anything whatsoever, as one barrister did. They held up a blank piece of paper, and uh, very much it was, a, it was a situation where the police came came over and was like, "Oh, what would you do if I wrote, you know, not my king or something like that?" It was like, "Well, we'll have to arrest you." So, Why? Well, be, why would they have to I, arrest? I, don't, I, I think don't that's quite. That. Yeah, I don't understand that. Off a thing. Yeah. yeah. But, but there's one thing which actually. And I was listening to a different podcast, a very popular podcast, I think it was Empire by um, that historian, uh, William Dalrymple. Uh, and it was basically about the fact that there's been no discussion around the uh, legacy of empire uh, in Britain all mm. the time. And that it's just shut down as wokeism and oh, this mm. sort of thing. It's like you're talking Britain down. It's like for so many countries around the world, the legacy which Queen Elizabeth represents is one of the worst and most painful living memories. Mm-hmm. So like there's so much talked about even for the fact that like, oh, Queen Elizabeth was in Kenya when she found out that she was going to be the Queen of England. Yeah. And it was literally within the start of her regime that there was a huge clampdown and there was horrible crimes committed in the name of that monarchy. The crown and the scepter with which King Charles will be coronated contains diamonds which were effectively looted from South Africa, uh, which cost hundreds and hundreds of millions. Mm. Of mm. pounds. There's been no real discussion around any of that, but there has been discussion now around the question of free speech and whatnot. But it's such a strange thing that there is no 
I think there will I think there will be those discussions but I do think well again I just think from coming back from the UK I suppose like just the sentiment there at the moment is sort of kind of the point you made there that a family is grieving I think that seems to be and I think that there will probably be space there will inevitably be space I should say for those conversations probably I I, I would actually disagree because I don't think think I don't think Britain has ever held space for those conversations I I think they may have to though they they may have to I think they may have to I think actually it's actually an interesting point because Charles has actually showed himself potentially more open to these discussions he's talked Mm. about slavery and the fact that you know the British royal family has itself over many many centuries has continued to have that line of wealth which has resulted from the transatlantic slave Mm -hmm. trade and he's talked about things like that when Mm. other people in Britain probably have. Well Princess Eugenie has a podcast an anti-slavery podcast and I've actually never listened to it but I know that she has worked on an anti-slavery project and Mm. has a podcast in relation to that. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I think if they don't have, never have that, if they don't have that debate now, excuse me, I, I don't know if they ever will because it would strike me that one of the reasons why you would shirk away from it is because it would seem disrespectful to the the pensioner who's on the throne who is supposed to be your your Majesty and that if she's your sovereign that it would seem like you're different pensioner to her. now though. But if it's a different pensioner, precisely that it's not someone who maybe commands affection in slight, slightly the same way as she did. Um, on a total pivot, can we discuss the marmalade sandwiches thing? Like, oh, sorry, did, like did, you, did you come across many yeah. marmalade sandwiches no, no, when you were like, there? Yeah, no, no. There's, Paddington there's, has become the avatar. Paddington has become the symbol, kind of. And I, I think that, like, again, in fairness, I think you've got a nation grieving and it provides great comfort to people in Britain at the moment. Um, the amount of people who referenced Paddington kind of bringing her over the Rainbow Bridge, kind of, I mean, it was astonishing, really, actually. And believe, seeing, um, you know, seeing the... not in position to do that oh, I know. He's not I dead. know, but it makes people feel better. And I kind of, I kind of get it from that perspective and you know and I think as well like some of the stuff that we've seen kind of go viral over the last couple and we'll talk about Harry and and William in a moment because obviously that's Mm. people are kind of losing their minds over that as well but you know for example the clip we saw from from Belfast yesterday of Charles becoming quite frustrated because a pen had started leaking and I think he put like the wrong date down or something in the book got the date wrong said it was yeah the 12th, 12th instead of the 13th 13th <laughs> like, I, like I'm not I'm not defending anyone here but I'm also like you know someone's mother just died as well like it's yeah. very exhausting it's kind of overwhelming you kind of made a good point yesterday, though, that we've never seen the Queen lose her cool ever. Yeah, I think kind of in seventy years. Some of it's to do with obviously the way the media works now and everything yeah. is always. I couldn't on believe that clip kind of got released. That was mad. That was it was a on pool. a pool feed, though. Yeah. yeah, obviously it was on a pool. But it was interesting. Did you not notice? I thought at the timing. So, like, I think it was CBS News put it up first, or one of the mm. Americans put it up first, and then it sort of trickled. The BBC didn't share it till like this morning until it was well and truly kind of. I think it, I looked at the thing. I think it was a, it was a Sky had the camera in there, but it was supposed to be pulled. But it was only after one of the Americans basically broke cover and yeah. said, "We're sharing this." That they sort of felt like, "Oh, we'd be Oops. silly then if we didn't yeah. didn't put it out there as well." Inky um, pens, though, not fun. I will, I will, I will <laughs> no. say, frustrating. We'll empathise there. Yeah. We'll empathise there. Now, mm-hmm. you when you were around Windsor, was there much growth for um, William and Harry having sort of oh, ventured out yeah, together? People loved it. Like absolutely loved it. I think people really felt like it was. Um, you know, that it was a real moment of reconciliation. But I don't know, royal correspondents and commentators would probably disagree with that. We don't have a lot of time to get into this now, but I would just say, I, I you know, like looking at the Harry and Meghan situation, probably a very triggering situation, you'd imagine, for Meghan Markle to find herself coming on what was a quick visit to the UK and is now kind of mm, essentially yeah. stuck there. Mm. So... Um, she's again been hyper-analysed. And kind of, yeah. yeah. She, she's damned if she doesn't, damned if she doesn't. Yeah. Like she'd be, she'd be criticised if she didn't go out and shake hands and take flowers and she'd be criticised for yeah. doing it as well. She can't win. Yeah. No. It's something, well, we'll definitely be back to it next week. Of course, we have in, in the time between our two podcasts, the State Funeral. You will be there next week. Yeah, we'll be there. You'll There'll be come a, back with stories from there, no stories doubt. Stories of one of the biggest events that'll happen, yeah. perhaps in our lifetimes. But yeah. send in your thoughts. Send in your thoughts. There are a lot of ta- we thoughts. We love your thoughts. We love your thoughts. Give us your thoughts. We will have solved imperialism by the next time we speak to you. <laughs> well, till next time, uh, Gavin, Sarah.
Richard, Thank you very thanks much. You. Thanks so much for joining the group chat. See you next time. Bye.